Praise the Lord. I'm grateful you folks are here tonight. Though some of us perhaps may be tired, hungry, um, cold. I'm grateful you made a decision to be here tonight. And I, um, I promise you this, it's always a privilege and opportunity to be in the house of God. Be here this coming weekend as a pastor will be returning. I have uh, on good word here, uh, when pastor had asked me last week to preach in his absence, he asked me what text I would be preaching from. And Pastor, if you're watching, first of all, happy anniversary. Second of all, um, I know you can preach a much better uh, message from the same text. I've, I've got on good um, from him himself that he'll be preaching from this passage as well. So um, I don't know when that's going to be happening here, but you be sure to be in your places, in your proper place. That's right here at Harris Baptist Church um, when he does so. Take your Bibles with me to Judges chapter number 2. Judges chapter number 2. Go ahead and stand in reverence to God's word, if you would, please. Judges chapter number 2. And for the sake of time, I'm actually be covering the entire chapter. Don't worry, I'm not going to be having us read that. But for the sake of time, I'm going to read verse 7 through 11. Judges chapter number 2, beginning verse number 7. How many are grateful to be in the house of God tonight? Amen. Amen. I tell you, it's, a, it's always a refreshing opportunity to be here. Um, and I, I thank God so much. As Brother Owen said here, I do have um, much, I, I, I have the privilege, mind you, to serve in this great ministry. And yes, in many uh, facets, some that I don't think very many people even know of. Um, but I'm grateful because things need to be fixed. Vehicles need to be ran. Oils need to be changed and whatnot. And I'm grateful for so many of you folks here, for our faithful drivers week after week, the, our, our bus workers in our transportation ministry. Um, really some un, unsung heroes alongside. I, um, I paired up there with some of our nursery workers. So thank you for all the ladies and gentlemen who serve in that capacity. Judges chapter number two, if you're there tonight, say amen. amen. Beginning verse number seven, the Bible reads, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, that's the name of his father. It's not that he had no father. The servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnathres in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there rose, I want you to notice this, another generation after them. Read that next phrase with me. Ready? Begin. Which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Let's pray, shall we? Father, tonight I come before you very much in need and incapable of my, in and of myself, Lord, to be, to even stand behind this sacred desk. But God, tonight I come before you utterly crying out, not only for need for myself, but for these, your people. Tonight, Lord, is a message that I sincerely believe is greatly need to be preached. And first and foremost, for myself, God, I pray that you would cleanse me. I pray, Father God, that I might be a holy vessel. Lord, as I declare your word, I pray, Father God, that the lips, my lips might be anointed by you. The words I am to speak, Lord, might be um, Lord, just uh, anointed by you as well. And I pray, Father God, that for these, your people, that God, you'd help them and fill them as well. May they be ready to receive your word as it is the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls and change our lives. But tonight, I also pray, Father God, that you would bind the forces of the, the wicked one, the devil and his minions, that he has no place here. 
Even as Brother Irwin had just prayed, God, I pray that we would set aside all distractions. That, Lord, we won't be thinking about what's going to be for dinner tonight. God, we won't be thinking about what needs to be done tomorrow. What um, items on our task list that we did not check off today. But, Lord, right now we'll be all here. And that, Lord, our hearts and our minds might be completely engulfed within your word tonight. Please use me that I might glorify you. And may you be, Lord, I, I give, right now I thank you so much for what you're about to do. Well, thank you so much for these things, if you ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much for standing. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Fong had shared with the staff, and I think select people as well, a news article from foxnews.com. And it's talking about Generation Z. Generation Z, and it's, I quote, says, The generation following the millennials is the least Christian generation to date. And according to a new Barna study, 34% of Generation Z's religious affiliation is either atheist, agnostic, or none. In fact, teens 13 to 18 years old are twice as likely as adults to say that they're atheists. And just 3 in 5, 13 to 18-year-olds, say that they are some kind of Christians, about 59%. Many Christian teens are simply unprepared for the world that is waiting for them. With the best of intentions, we bubble wrap our kids and create a Disney World-like environment for them in our churches and then wonder why we have no resilience in faith and in their faith or life. Students are entertained, but not prepared. They've had a lot of fun, but are not ready to lead. When the pressure to conform is turned up, Christian teens tend to wilt if they do not have the confidence that only comes from knowing why they believe what they believe. As one teenager said, following Jesus today is just hard because sometimes you feel like you're the only one. Generation Z has been discipled by their smartphones, taught sex ed by Google, and conditioned to assume that just because they believe something makes it true, our culture is changing fast and teenagers are confused morally and spiritually, end quote. That's a strong news report, friends, isn't it? I think it's a very sobering statement to be, to, to be said at the least. If we are not careful... If we do not take heed and awake to righteousness, as Paul told the church at Corinth, biblical Christianity was in danger of being one generation away from extinction. Tonight, I want to sound the alarm and remind us that though we may see the Lord's hand of blessing upon us right now in the process of this building and seeing souls come saved knowledge of Jesus Christ and having this Easter musical, friends, can I tell you tonight, we must take heed to the spiritual well-being of the generation that is to follow. People ask me from all different places. I oftentimes get emails from other youth pastors or people here calls me um, when I meet people at perhaps maybe conferences or, or uh, at youth camps and say, hey, how is it that you're serving with the youth? And probably make some kind of pithy statement to me. He said, well, you know what? That you're not going to last very long there with teenagers. And I tell them this, well, you know what? I count it a great privilege, yea, a great responsibility to train up the following generation. Well, friends... If we do not take heed to our generations that are to follow, the commentary of Judges 2 verse 10 might very well be the same for 2020. The book of Judges picks up after the death of Joshua, 
Moses' successor, and amidst one of the rally cries for Christendom, found in the previous chapter, Josh 24, listen with me, as the Bible reads, in Josh 24, verse 14 and 16, Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity, and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem ye want you to serve the Lord, I've seen in so many homes, it says this, Choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But however, we know the story, don't we? Israel sank into apathy. Instead of obeying the Lord, the people moved into apostasy. And instead of nation enjoying the law and order, the land was filled with anarchy. One of the saddest commentaries in this entire book is found in Judges 21, 25. And it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Surely this describes our society today, doesn't it? In the beginning narrative of the book of Judges, we bear witness to what we call a theophany. The angel of the Lord comes up from Gilgal. And the tabernacle, if we remember, was originally located in Gilgal. And it was there that the men of Israel were circumcised. And it says in Joshua 5 uh, that their, the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. It was also there, friends, may I remind us, that the Lord appeared to Joshua and he assured him of that victory. That victory was to be his and his campaign to conquer Canaan. To Joshua, the angel of the Lord brought a message of encouragement. But to the new generation, described here in the book of Judges, he brought a message of punishment. And the angel of the Lord begins, if you see with me, first of all, in Judges chapter 2, verse, beginning verse number 1, I see here a divine declaration. Notice with me. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land which I swore unto you, your fathers. And I said, I will never break, never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you did not obey my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they, the people, that is, called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Oh, friends, the fact that the Lord himself had to come to give the message shows how serious things have become in Israel. His declaration begins with a personal reminder. Will you notice with me in our text? I see here, it begins with a personal reminder. The Lord had kept His covenant. His covenant with His chosen people, Israel. And not one word of His promises had failed. Amen? Can I tell you, friends, not one word of God's promises still have failed today. He had asked them to keep the covenant with Him by obeying His law and destroying the Canaanite religious system. We see here, he speaks about the, his deliverance from Egypt. He says, I made you go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swore to your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. Oh, friends, let me ask you, have you, are you reminded of the deliverance that, that you had those many years ago from the penalty of sin the moment you got saved? I still look back to April 12th of 1992 as a little boy, not much older, younger than my son Bo is today. Can I tell you this, friends? I praise God for that deliverance. I praise God as much that my, my future is no longer one that's headed for a devil's hell. I'm here to tell you tonight, friends. God oftentimes, when he tells us of a great reminder, he points right back to our, um, the moment of our spiritual deliverance. 
May we never forget that. He reminded them of their deliverance. But notice he also promised them of their new land. Canaan here, by the way, is a picture of the victorious Christian life. Not salvation. The Red Sea pictured that for the Jews. Just as God promised a land of abundant blessings to the Jews, so He has promised victory and abundant blessings for every Christian as well. Can I tell you, friends, that can happen right now. However, there are some stipulations, if you will, a key to unlocking the blessings of God and victory over one's enemies. So it leads me to other prerequisites to living in the land. He says here, first of all, don't befriend the pagan nations. God didn't want the filth of the Canaanite society and the religions of that Canaanite society to contaminate His people, Israel. They were God's special people, chosen to fulfill divine purposes in this world. And in order to accomplish God's purposes, the nation had to be separated from all other nations. For if Israel was polluted, how could the Holy Son of God come into this world? G. Campbell Morgan, the Scottish preacher, of years gone by, said this, God is perpetually at war with sin. That is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. And the problem is, friends, there's so many Christians here who like to dabble in it. We like to kind of keep our little pet sins. Oh, it's okay. It's my little teacup poodle of greed. And so long as I don't let it out of my boundaries, as long as I can regulate it, it's okay. And we fool ourselves into thinking so. But may it remind us here, friends, in this day of pluralism and tolerance, when society contains people opposing beliefs and lifestyles, it's easy to get confused to start thinking that tolerance is the same as approval. Can I tell you wholeheartedly tonight, friends? It is not. The church does not wield the sword. True. And therefore, has no authority to eliminate people who disagree with the Christian faith. But we do, as God's children, have the obligation before God to maintain a separate holy walk unto Him so we won't be defined by those who disagree with us. Take your Bibles with me, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, beginning in verse number 14. We're given a stern admonition here. And Paul told the church at Corinth, many a stern warning, but here it is. He says here, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And notice here, and I will receive you. Did you hear that, friends? God said to say, hey, I'm going to receive you on your terms. He said, no, you want me to receive you? You're going to do so on my terms. We must seek by prayer and witnessing personal evangelism and loving persuasion to win the loss to Christ. But friends, notice here, he told them also this in these prerequisites to destroy their places of worship. He didn't tell him to poo. put it aside for just a little while. Can I tell you tonight, friends, it is implied that whom one worships, he also serves. God did not want his people to have left a place of idolatry like Egypt, only to be ensnared with another culture of idolatry. The Jews eventually became accustomed to the sinful ways of their pagan neighbors. That's that those ways didn't seem sinful anymore. 
The main deity in Canaan, however, we see here, it talks about, in the latter um, verses here, the god Baal. He's known as a god of rainfall and fertility. And Ashtoreth was his spouse. If you wanted to have fruitful orchard, orchards and vineyards, flourishing co- crops and increasing flocks and herds, everybody in that society understood you worship Baal by visiting a temple prostitute. But you know, friends, this combination of idolatry and immorality was an abomination to this agricultural success. It was difficult for men to resist, which explains why God told Israel to wipe out their Canaanite religion completely. Numbers 33, verse 51, 56. Let me point out verse number 52. It says, Then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their high places. Jump down to verse 55. But... If you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. In our backyard, used to be, and I'm grateful for Justin to care of the rest, um, used to be a nasty old vine entrenched with some um, some rose bushes. If you guys know anything about rose bushes, the, the roses themselves are beautiful. But you reach for them, surrounded by a, a huge vine that looks so enticing, you'll find yourself quickly regretting. <laughs> I remember as one, I was in the backyard just uh, trying to get rid of all those vines one day. It was literally... Uh, this pouring itself, you could not even see the fence. And I remember as we, I was going back there, I thought to myself, this is fairly easy. I just grabbed a chunk of the vine, it was ripping off like no problem here and there until I went to go grab on something solid. And as I pulled back, I didn't realize until I thought to myself, I, I felt this sharp pain. And as I opened up, I quickly jumped back and I opened up my hand. I come to realize my hand right in the middle of my palm, I grabbed a huge thorn. It was only one thorn. But I tell you what, that one thorn was enough to tell this man, hey, hey, I've done my due diligence for today. I tell you what, friends, why was I clearing my backyard? Because I have smaller children. Because I knew that the vines were going to creep their way into our front yard. They were very quickly. And that my kids play hide and seek from behind the trees, even though despite them saying, do not do so. I knew that I was trying, what was I trying to do there? Prevent something that was so aesthetically pleasing to the eye from becoming not only a nuisance, but a problem for my children. It's amazing how the thought of the generation, especially those of your own children, make us just a tad bit more cautious, don't we? I tell you this, however, just as that small little thorn, I don't know about you, I like to work with wood. I like to build um, build things. Before, while I was in college, one of my jobs I did was framing. And I realized real quickly in that hot Mojave Desert, man, if you're with your, your safety goggles, if you get really, really hot, it starts to fog up and becomes very irritating with your hard hat and everything else. 
As people would start to clear out and so on and so forth. As I'm getting there, I got my saw, I got my hammers, I got all my tools on my person. I thought, I can do this. My, I, I got tired of my glasses. One day, as I'm looking, I take off my glasses. In the process of doing so, I hear one of the guys who's cutting the, he's cutting the two by fours for me. As we're laying up this one wall to the, um, to the master bedroom. I see him, he's kind of just humming, and all I hear is a big, loud groan. Oh! I'm thinking, oh no. I'm looking for blood, I'm looking for fingers and digits on the floor. And it wasn't, um, what ended up happening was, he already had the idea. Well, you know, this is my, my glasses fogging up too. He had taken off his safety goggles. And somehow along the way, that, that bag that collects all your dust clogged up. Where do, if you do anything about framing, you're cutting a lot of wood. And that bag cleared up so much, that he's starting to get that blowback and all that, all that, um, all that, um, sawdust started flying back at him. Unbeknownst to him, one of the pieces of wood from a previous cut uh, of some plywood had broken off. And a two and a half inch sliver flew right into the side of his right eye. As he, as he grimaced, I looked at him and at first I'm thinking, man, I'm saying something weird. Talk about, uh, removing the beam in your own eye. I had no idea. I said, hey man, He's like, oh. I'm like, whoa, you okay? I asked him, hey man, you, you okay, bro? He says, yeah, I think so. Just, I don't know. I feel like I got an eyelash in my thigh. Do you got something, my eyelash in my eye or something? I'm like, I looked at him like, you got more than just an eyelash. If you, 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 you need, uh, you need, uh, you need to go to a new salon. This is not good for you. As he pulled out, he looked in the mirror. I said, hey, wait, wait don't pull it out as of yet. We went and I drove him to the ER. And when they, what, what looked like a small little sliver, didn't realize more than three quarters of it had embedded itself right into the side of his eye. Just one small sliver. That's all it took. Tell you what, the rest of that job, I didn't see him in the workplace. Because of one little sliver. I didn't finish the rest of that yard that week because of one little thorn. And friends, can I be reminded here, as God says to the children of Israel... If we're not careful, Warren Wearsby puts notes it this way, for believers today, the first step from the Lord is friendship with the world. James 4.4 tells us that to have friendship with the world is to have enmity with God, which then leads to our being spotted by the world. The next step is to love the world, and gradually, contrary to what Paul told the church at Rome, it can lead to us being conformed to the world. Oh, friends, this, mo- this evening, we see a personal reminder, but notice a pointed rebuke. Notice with me in verse number 2, the latter part of verse number 2. You shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? The Lord doesn't sugarcoat His accusations, nor does He beat around the bush. He outright declares, ye have not obeyed my voice. Then ask the rhetorical question, why have ye done this? As if to say, how could you commit such treachery after all that I have done for you? God is rebuking Americans, our believers in America today, friends. And we don't need to listen to the news very long to know that to be true. 17 massacred at a local Florida high school. North Korea flexes its nuclear muscle power. Women in Livermore found stabbed multiple times and left for dead on the side of the road. Dies of her wounds at the hospital. Hollywood exposes sex scandals. Homes wiped out by Montecito mudslide. Brethren, it's time to wake up out of our spiritual apathy. We must be reminded, as 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Judge, just like the Old Testament judges, the Lord is calling for some righteous people from within the nation to rise up, be sanctified, and lead a nation back to God. Well, friends, God will not hesitate to remove His blessings upon His people if our suffering will only motivate us to return back to Him in repentance. We see appointed rebuke. But notice with me, in verses 4 to 5, I see here the people's response. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these things, spake these words unto the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. By their disobedience, the nation and people of Israel made it clear that they wanted Canaanites to remain in the land. God let them have their way, by the way. But He warned them of the tragic consequences. The nations in the land of Canaan would become thorns and would afflict them and and, um, and traps that would ensnare them. Israel would look to the Canaanites for pleasure, but it would only experience pain. They would rejoice in their freedom, only to see that freedom turn into bondage. The word bokum here means to weep or place of weeping. No wonder the people wept when they heard the message. However, notice with me, their sorrow wasn't because of the consequences of... Well, it wasn't because they were convicted of their sin, but rather because of the consequences. It was a shallow and temporary sorrow that never led to true repentance. Notice the Bible says, For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive, perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you made sorry, sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Oh friends, notice, notice with me the steps the Jews took that led to this new generation's distinct degradation. In verse number 6, when Joshua had let the people go, let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his, into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, a servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of the, his inheritance. Verse 10 and also that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done for Israel. Notice with me, how did it begin, you might ask? How does this distinct degradation begin? First of all, friends, they started with them dismissing the Lord's conquests. One of the first steps to the downfall of a nation is that it forgets its defenders that fought to provide the freedoms they have, present, they have at present. Our 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, stated, the nation in which forgets its defenders would be itself forgotten. Oh, friends, we have many a spiritual, great spiritual giants in our time. Men like missionaries to the Philippines, as a pastor stated from behind his pulpit, Bob Hughes. God has used this man to impact the lives of so many missionaries. Missionaries like Brother Rick Martin, pastor of Iloilo Baptist Church since 1977, for 41 years. God would use Brother Hughes to encourage not only him, but other missionary men. Men like Fred Knoll, who would serve 20 years as a missionary in the Philippines till a stroke caused him to return to the States. His heart for the Filipino people, however, did never dim- diminished. And the Lord would use this man to start the Filipino Baptist Church in National City, California. 
It was in this church that he would lead a rough U.S. Navy sailor named Larry O'Barrow to the Lord. It was under the leadership of Pastor Larry O'Barrow that the Lord would call me, so would save my soul and call me to be a preacher of his word. All because one man, Bob Hughes, was willing to say, I will go, who will follow? Praise the Lord for the conquest of these spiritual giants. But friends, I wonder, does Generation Z know men like Bob Hughes? John R. Rice? Do they know men like Rick Martin? Bobby Robertson? How important it is for each new generation to recognize and appreciate the great men and women who have impacted their lives in such a great way, not because of who they are or what they did, but whom they represent. Oh, friends, they dismissed the Lord's conquests. But notice, secondly, I see that they departed from the Lord's commandments. Verse 11 to 13 tells us, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people which were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And notice this, verse 13, The result was they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. Had this generation known Joshua, they would have known his farewell speeches. They would have given the speeches he gave to his leaders and the people of Israel, as we read in Joshua 24. Had they known those speeches, they would have known the law of Moses. For in his final messages, Joshua emphasized the covenant God had made with Israel and the responsibility Israel had to keep it. Friends, can I tell you tonight, when we forget the word of God, we are in danger of forsaking the God of the word, which explains why Israel turned to the abominable practices of Baal worship. They departed from the Lord's commandments. But notice the result was, they then disqualified themselves from the Lord's covenant. Notice in verse 14 and 15, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. When they went out to fight their enemies, Israel was defeated. Because the Lord wasn't with His people, this is what, Mo, is what, what Moses had said would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. But that isn't all. Israel's enemies eventually became their masters. Oh, friends, may I give us a heat of warning? The sin in our lives that we fail to conquer will eventually conquer you. God permitted one nation after another to invade the promised land and enslave His people, making life so miserable for them that they had to cry out for help in distress. They disqualified themselves from the Lord's covenant. But in verse 16 to the end of this chapter, notice to me, they then diminish themselves to a losing cycle. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And notice verse 17, and they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Oh, what word... Wherein did the Israelites fail? They failed to learn from what the Lord did, friends. Whenever Israel turned away from the Lord to worship idols, He chastened them severely. 
And when they returned back to him in their misery, he liberated them. But just as soon as they were free and their situation was comfortable again, Israel went right back in the same old sins. The Bible says in verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of. Is often the repeated statement that records a sad, cyclical nature of Israel's sins. They had diminished themselves to a losing cycle. They wasted their sufferings. They didn't learn the lessons God wanted them to learn and profit from his chastening. Friends, may it be a lesson and a heed to us to take warning that the cycle of disobedience, discipline, despair, and deliverance is seen today whenever God's people turn away from His Word and go their own way. Human rationale can only take you so long. Sure, there's pleasure in sin, but it's only but for a season. We see tonight not only a divine declaration, we hear of a distinct degradation. But notice with me, friends, a decided defense. The mold by which God would provide Israel's deliverance did not come from angels on high or any foreign power to aid them, but raised up judges from among themselves. These judges were ordinary men who were used of God to to do great and mighty works. The Lord was with the judges. In these days of great degeneracy and distress of the church, there shall be some whom God will either find or make to redress its grievances and set things right. For our immediate Bay Area, I sincerely believe the Lord has raised up our own pastor, Pastor Alan Fong, for such an occasion. That's why there is a Herod's Baptist Church. And that's why there's a sense of urgency behind our pastor every single time he stands behind this lectern and this pulpit, friends, to rally the troops, not only to give out invitations, but to give the gospel to a lost and dying world. It is we that must must follow the faith and guidance and leadership of our pastor and dare to live godly lives so that we might train the generations to follow. God has chosen to use preachers of his word to serve as this decided defense against this problem and the steps needed to ensure that we successfully pass on the torch of our faith to the next generation is by following these four steps real quickly. Notice me, we must return. We must return. Revelation 2 verse 4 and 5 reminds us, Nevertheless, I am somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick of its place, out of its place, except thou repent. Oh friends, Jesus Christ is crying out to us. We have a great and effectual door that's set before us. As we said here and we pray tonight, as I can hear the utterance across this room, praying for our, our Easter weekend activities. Friends, can I see, tell you this? That kind of praying needs to continue, needs to perpetuate, not just on Wednesday nights or when we have Easter weekends, but fathers in our homes daily, mothers, teachers, and amongst with our, our students. Friends, there must be the pursuit a personal godliness in every individual's life. Why? There are people in this world that need, that needs to stand for that which is true. Stories told of a man who goes to Jesus wanting to trade out his cross for a better one. Sounds like myself sometimes. He tells the Lord, Lord, I see the crosses others are carrying and theirs are much more bearable than mine. Why does my cross have to be so cumbersome and heavy? Other people carry their cross with ease and mine is hindering my day-to-day life. Jesus leads a man to a room full of crosses. Some are big and others are small. He's instructed to put down his cross right at the entrance. 
And then go, go and select a new one. The only stipulation was, once he made his selection, he could never complain or exchange his cross again. He searches for hours on end. The big crosses were just as, as he assumed, very large and very heavy. He couldn't even budge it. He knew there was no way he could ever carry those crosses. The smaller crosses were shockingly painful. Some had stickers that constantly stuck into your shoulder or back, reminding you of the beans you were bearing. Others were oddly shaped and rubbed your neck raw. Finally, the man came upon a cross that was perfect for him. Not too big, not too small. There were no sharp prodding objects, that, and it rested perfectly on his shoulder, so it would not irritate him as he carried it. The man cried out, Here it is, Lord, I found it. Jesus asked the man, Are you sure? Remember, there are no trades or exchanges, and no more complaint about your cross. The man replied, That's why I came here, God. This is exactly why I came here. I'm sure this is the perfect cross for me. To which Jesus replied, My child, that's the same cross you carried in with you today. Friends, before we complain about our issues, dare I say, and I'll be the first to say, we need to take a step back and consider what others are carrying. Or even a step further, would you have rather taken the cross that Jesus bore on your behalf? When we take a personal evaluation, we look back and we return to do the first things. Return to our first love, we'll come to find Jesus Christ with arms stretched wide open saying, I've always been here. And as he tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, when he tells us to come, all you that burden have be laden, and I will give you rest. You notice here, he says this, take my yoke upon you. I think in Christianity, we've duped ourselves into believing that, man, if we come to Christ and we'll lay our burdens, there's no burdens to carry whatsoever. That's it. Hunky-dory life. A life better, nothing but a bed of roses. Not true, friends. He simply tells us this, that a shared burden is a lighter one. And mind you, when we laid upon the shoulders of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, oftentimes, He bears it alone. We must return, but notice, friends, we must also, also relinquish. First of that of our sins, the psalmist in Psalm 79, 9 tells us, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for Thy name's sake. Paul told Timothy, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Though our cares, which are many, friends, God has but one care, and it is you and I. Isn't that amazing? But I wonder how many of us, especially at the altar of invitation, we sing that I surrender all, and we come with our burdens, and we lay down our sacks of burdens but for a while, only to pick it back up again and bring back to our Baptist assigned seats. Well, friends, can I tell you, there are some things in our life God never meant for us to bury. Never meant for us to carry. Not alone, anyhow. We must relinquish. Relinquish our past failures. Even, dare I say, our past victories, our cares, and most certainly, the uncertainty of their future. 
But notice letter C, he calls for us not only to return, to relinquish, but to repent. In Acts 17.30 says, But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I remember my grandfather, when I was just a child, probably five, six years old. I was always in awe. The very first time of the haze I got to see at the MCRD, the Marine Corps silent drill team. Oh man, talk about precision. Talk about determination. Uh, and man, these guys epitomize exactly what it was to me, the tip of the spear. And I remember as I stood there, not a single word, all you can hear is a clacking of the rifles in their white-gloved hands, the stomping their feet as they marched. And every single toss, every single spin, we, even when they, well, your, my eyes lit up even as large as saucers, the moment they put on their bayonets and started walking in between each other. If one man simply messed up or faltered to the left or to the right, even but a little bit, those real bayonets on those M1 Garands, would be another story. And I don't think they give you purple hearts for performances. But I'll tell you this, friends. I'll never forget at the presentation, one of the drill sergeants, when he was doing their, um, the color guard, their color guard was marching down. Marching down a straight line, Brother Hayes. I remember this distinctly. And I'll never forget the word he used. Now these terms we use, at least in my drill team, when you're trailing your entire unit, your entire squad, to turn around to about face and continue marching, we call it to the rear march. However, when they told these men, he called out a preparatory command, re, and the, uh, and the executive command, pent. Repent! Let me show you how that looked. Repent! For a five-year-old that day, it changed my whole perspective of what repentance is. Repentance, friends, is not just saying, Okay, God, I'm going to back up here because that's not the right direction. No, God says here, it's not just a change of heart and mind. It's also a change in direction, friends. So people are so far gone into sin. Why is that Jude said that we, when we're to have compassion... We have to make a difference, having, um, ha- and some having um, compassion making a difference. He goes and says this, that we are to not touch the garments spotted by the flesh. There are some so steeped in the sins of this world, watch and listen carefully friends, that you and I must take careful heed in the process of trying to help them not be pulled into the gravity of that sin itself. To repent... God not only commands us to do so, He wants our heart, yes. But so many of us, we're doing this, and we're holding on, our hearts still belong to this world. And we say, Lord, but I, I, I want it. Can I just go on my off time, in my spare time? And God said, no, you must return. You must relinquish. Let it go, and then repent. But then, fallen friends, this decided offense is only going to make sense if we do this final step. And that is to resolve. We must be a people who are resolute in our decision to train up the following generation. 
You heard it tonight. If you're not in discipleship, man, you ought to be. I encourage you. Pair up with somebody else. Find somebody there altogether. Say, hey, you know, brother, I haven't gone through it. Or maybe I started somewhere. You started along the way, but you never got to finish. The intention for discipleship, friends, is not to puff you up with knowledge. But rather, friends, to take a biblical perspective of the Word of God and also understand the philosophy of the ministries of Heritage Baptist Church. I'm here to tell you, friends, we must resolve to not only teach about the godliness, but in the pursuit, strive to live it out as well. The book of Judges is the inspired record of Israel's failures and God's faithfulness. But if we simply study this book only as past history, we'll miss the message completely and be doomed to repeat it. This book is about God's people today. To continue on, Fox News report. It says this, we need to reject the idea that if teenagers just attend church enough, they will build a strong faith. The attendance model is not working. Training is necessary. As our post-Christian culture increasingly marginalizes Christianity, it is critical for those of us who care about Generation Z not to take a business-as-usual approach to their formation. If we do nothing, they will be shaped away from life with God. End quote. When the psalmist reviewed the period of the judges in Psalms 106, he concluded with a prayer that we need to pray today. In Psalms 106, verse 47, he said, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen, to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Fathers, mothers, Sunday school teachers, fellow ministers of the Lord, we must heed the Lord's divine declaration. And we must beware of this distinct degradation in our society that's permeating our society today. And then we must choose to adhere to this decided defense for the sake of the generations that follow after us. If we don't, then we put Christianity gravely in danger of being one generation away from extinction. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, tonight, I thank you so much. Lord, I thank you so much for this very sobering reminder as outlined for us here in this book. Oh, would to God, Lord, if you came down in a theophany as the angel of the Lord. I wonder how many people would know. I wonder how many of your churches would even welcome you in with such a very strong message. But Lord, tonight, I come before you first and foremost as an individual, a sinner saved by your grace, and a child of God, first of all, thanking you so much for your mercy and your grace that, Lord, has been so graciously extended to me. May we, as your people, never forget this. Oh God, tonight I pray, and I plead with these, your people, tonight, that, Lord, we'd rise up, not only for the sakes of ourselves, but most especially for the sake of the generation that is to follow. God, if we're not careful, truly, and more than just being dramatic or anything of the sort, the truancy of it is, our Christianity is in danger of going extinct. Lord, you've given us your divine laws. You've given us the word, your complete, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. And Lord, we have been declared, we've been commissioned to proclamate it to this world. 
And tonight I pray, Lord, that we, as we as your people, that during this invitation time, that God, you'd work in our hearts in more than simply stirring us. Lord, I pray, Father God, we'd be stern to action. Please work during this invitation time for asking these things in Christ's name. With the heads bowed, eyes closed, will you stand to your feet? I wonder how many tonight might, like myself, say, you know what, Brother AJ? God's speaking to me in this personal reminder. There are some things in my life, I must confess, that God is pointing out in His rebuke. And my response is not necessarily one of true repentance. We grieve over the consequences, not so much of the conviction of our transgressions. Oh, have we found ourselves in this distinct degradation? Families, did you gather your children? They are the next generation. They will either be the thorn or the hope of our future. For others, can I say this, friends, not to puff anybody up, but I thank you so much, parents, for the investment in the lives of your children. Because a youth pastor like myself, my fellow youth workers can attest to this. We have the privilege of serving them. And it is they that are stepping up in their youth groups. It is they that are inviting their friends in their schools. Can I say this, how we're parents? Not only keep it up, but encourage them. Encourage them to keep, keep on keeping on. Despite the liberalism and leftist move in our nation today, more than anything else, friends, in a sinful society, may we stand and say, God, may you be glorified and may you reign supreme. Would you let God work in your time this, during this invitation? Some are still praying. I encourage you to do business with the Lord. Parents, maybe take a moment to pray with your children tonight and encourage them to stay faithful in following God's will for their life. Lord, thank you so much for tonight and thank you for the challenge of your word and the soberness of how true what your word says regarding each and every generation. We think about the book of Judges, Lord, and it took one generation to stray from your word and to stray from the will of God to produce a generation that doesn't know you. God, we are accountable and we are responsible for what we do with what we know in our generation. Lord, your word says, to whom much is given, much is required. And surely you will hold us responsible and accountable for what we've heard tonight. Help us, Lord, not to be fearful of our responsibilities. Help us not to be weary in well-doing. But help us, Lord, to rely uh, in your strength and in your power to do what you've called us to do. We love you and we thank you for what you've done in our hearts tonight. Thank you for Pastor AJ and, and sharing not only your heart, but his to us. And we pray that you'd bless him as he continues to serve you in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.